You are listening to Innovate at Open, stories from the cutting edge of technology innovation rooted in open source software and collaborative processes. I'm your host, Gordon Half. Hi, everyone. I'm sitting here at KubeCon in not-so-sunny San Diego with Chris of the Lix Foundation and Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Chris, introduce yourself. Chris Hanizek. I have the fun job of uh, being VP of Developer Relations at the Linux Foundation uh, and also CTO and CEO of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Um, you know, I have multiple hats. You know, as you know, CNCF is part of the Linux Foundation and the Linux Foundation kind of really serves as a foundation of foundations. And, you know, I have one hat that is responsible for the overall kind of developer relationship uh, strategy and programs across all of our different sub-foundations. And then I helped start CNCF a little over, it's almost four years. It'll be four years um, in December uh, and kind of have the fun job of maintaining and growing our technical community and making sure things are, are essentially, you know, our projects are being served. And that's Cloud Native Computing Foundation, of which Kubernetes was the first project, but right. it's certainly not the only one these days. Our topic today is open governance. Uh, a lot of the time, I think we focus in on things like licenses, or we may focus in on community health. But governance is a really important part, and it's a really important part of community health as well. Governance is sort of a multifaceted word, though. So why don't we start with what is governance from an open source perspective? I think a lot of people, you know, you know, I've had a lot of conversations the last, um, you know, month or so, especially kind of a lot of kind of the, the, the drama that bubbled up around, you know, Istio and Knative people are like trying to understand the difference between, you know, what is an open source project and what is like an openly governed project. I'm like, open source generally means that you just have like an OSI, you know, approved license, you know, attached to it, right? Whether it's Apache, MIT, but that license itself doesn't actually, you know, tell you how the project is governed, like who makes the decisions, how are maintainers added, who owns the rights to the domain, who owns the rights to the trademarks, how are those things governed, right? Um, Who owns how the build system works and how the artifacts are associated with those projects are built. So, you know, governance uh, implies kind of uh, the the control of, of of these things trademarks domains project assets uh, decisions of how maintainers are added and removed and projects that abide by openly governed principles or open governance are tend to be more successful long term especially as they grow in size than projects that are not I think Kubernetes is a very kind of canonical uh, example of, of, of a very successfully openly governed project where the Kubernetes trademark and, uh, is governed by the Kubernetes conformance working group and we have this wonderful thing where you know there's a lot of Kubernetes there's over a hundred uh, you know as Dan announced in his keynote earlier this week there's over a hundred Kubernetes certified solutions and it's a very fair process it's neutrally owned not one company could say that oh you can't use that because, you know, we own it. And so um, that's kind of why I encourage people to go the openly governed route, because eventually you may get into thorny situations where there's disagreements. And if you don't have that, you know, governance in place, you know, what's going to happen? Maybe just one company will will boot you out and, and, and you'll have a fair say. It's kind of, it's almost like government. It's, like a, poli- it's a political institution in, 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 in many ways. So that's, <laughs> that's maybe open governance summed up quickly. So. You mentioned Kubernetes. We're at KubeCon. So maybe it would be instructive to kind of take us through how Kubernetes got to where it is today from a governance perspective and maybe some of the reasons that certain decisions were made. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's like there's no one prescribed, uh, you know, formula on how to kind of do this. Um, you know, the Linux Foundation way and the CNCF way is that there is no way. You have to kind of have these communities figured out for themselves. And so the way Kubernetes started was, you know, they, they made the first decision that we are going to move the project to a, you know, neutral foundation, right? They wanted to create their own, so they did it under the Linux Foundation. Great. They announced that at OzCon about uh, it's almost like, you know, four four years ago. Um, essentially in, I think it was June, 20, 2015. And then through that process, uh, they needed to come up with a charter for, for, for the project. And so like, how are we going to do this? And so the advice was, well, you know, generally we have these things called like steering committees or technical steering committees in, in Linux foundation niches. You should probably form one. And eventually the Kubernetes community decided to do that. They said, let's do a bootstrap steering committee. Uh, and, and, you know, that was a, a good move. You saw a lot of the original bootstrap steering committee thanked, uh, on stage day, but they built it in a way where, you know, there's term limits and, you know, people rotate over time. I think only two people could be represented on the steering committee from, from, um, what, you know, one company. So there's, so there's kind of these rules in place to ensure kind of fair governance that one, you know, one company can't, you know, gerrymander the project, uh, in, in their interest, uh, too much. And, you know, um, there's been essentially enough elections now where the steering committee is, you know, fairly, you know, independent. It's no longer in bootstrap mode and, and it's kind of things working working well. Also, as part of that process, we created the uh, conformance working group in Kubernetes and that was there to figure out how to steward the, the trademark. You know, by default, we kind of have a, a somewhat restrictive trademark policy at the Linux Foundation for all of our projects, but it's the same default. Uh, but we do allow every single project to define their own policy, especially if they do like a conformance program. So that was formed with a bunch of uh, folks from the community. We had folks from Red Hat, Google, IBM, you know, VMware, a bunch of companies, and they created this, you know, amazing process based on what they thought was technically the right thing to do for what they would call a conformant solution. We've created some wonderful legal paperwork and a wonderful kind of open source process to do that, where people submit kind of conformance test results via GitHub, we approve it, and then boom, you get to use it. And it's, it's worked extremely well. It's, I think it's built a lot of trust in the community. And I think trust is a, is table stakes in order to build kind of strong communities, because I think without openly governed institutions, you know, and projects, uh, trust is very hard to, to come by, always, in my, opinion, in my opinion. Chris, I don't expect you to be totally unbiased about this, but there's a number of different foundation approaches out there, uh, and you've been involved with Eclipse in the past, I know. Uh, and uh, what are these, diff- what are some of these different models, and what are the reasons for them being different? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, uh, I mean, there's, there's two orthogonal things to talk about. One is like foundations, you know, have different sets of, you know, bylaws, charters and how they're structured. And there's fascinating difference between these uh, organizations, you know, like Apache is very famous for like the Apache way and that they, that's how they expect projects operate. Uh, They kind of have very much guardrails and how releases are done. Votes have to be done by PMC. They kind of have an incubator process where every project starts with before it, it kind of graduates to a top level project with an associated PMC. But like in terms of like how projects are governed, like almost like an infinite amount of approaches, like you could do something like the kernel style, right, where you basically have the the benevolent dictator for for life model, right? Um, Python was run uh, run like that, and interesting enough that they actually uh, uh, the Guido stepped down 
uh, recently and said, like, I'm out, like someone else, uh, make this an openly governed thing. And they're, go- they're kind of going through that process now, which is a little bit fascinating. Um, other ways to do it is, um, you know, simply by, uh, call it more of like a duocracy model where, you know, you have a, a set of maintainers that uh, get voted upon based on how much work to do and they get some percentage or proportional vote to enact change, right? Um, there's also, um, you know, a lot of Apache projects do this thing called um, kind of like lazy consensus where, um, you know, you're free to kind of make changes and you call for votes. But if if you don't really vote, that's implied that you're okay with it, <laughs> essentially. So there's just so many different kind of ways to do this. And even in CNCF, like each of our projects are kind of openly governed differently uh, and uniquely based on their needs. Some projects limit and roll up uh, votes based on things based on uh, a company. So like one company equals one vote. I think Core DNS is structured this way where uh, say you have 20 maintainers, 19 of them are from one company uh, and another one is from uh, you know another company. Essentially uh, that's, you know, they get that, that one person gets the same vote as those, those 19 people. So there's just many ways to kind of do this. And, you know, this goes back to kind of our LF philosophy that, you know, each project is kind of uniquely unhappy in their own way and prescribing one way to do things, I think just doesn't work. And I think that's kind of the advantage that we've had, you know, over the years. And it's kind of one of the reasons I think Linux Foundation has, has grown significantly compared to other organizations. At least that's my biased perspective. As we talked about before, yeah. there there certainly has been at some level great success in open source, but the I don't, I'm not sure it's the flip side, but certainly an aspect of that is the commercialization of open source that has come with it, and there are certainly people who feel that foundations. Yeah perhaps most notably the Linux Foundation, are really at the core of that commercialization and that that is sort of a move away from the more community-based, not just hobbyist, but individual contributor type of approach. What's your reaction to that? Part of it is open source is, you know, inherently everywhere now. So I think I was at GitHub Universe recently and they quoted this statistic that 99% of, uh, you know, companies are using open source software. So naturally, if they're going to be using, you know, it, they're going to be contributing. And so most open source contributors these days actually, you know, work at companies. I think the, the old days of the individual hobbyist maintainer still exist, but it's significantly minor to what it is now. We're actually going to be uh, you know, releasing some data soon where uh, we actually went and analyzed the top 200 uh, repos based on usage uh, across each language. So like Java, you know, Node, Python. And on average, those repos, the top 200 ones, 75% of the uh, contributors uh, uh, for, for those projects and contributions came from people employed by companies. So I think there's this almost like either misconception or hearken to old times. But like companies and organizations are involved. Like, and, and when that happens, like big business, you need to have like, I think neutrality and open governance to kind of keep everyone in check. Like it's just, it's, it's just, I think the way it is, like it's, it's, I, I, I don't know. And the Linux foundation has kind of been a, a good steward in, in trying to enable this type of ecosystem where we host projects. We have openly governed things where, you know, companies could trust each other and not, you know, sue each other and kind of compete fairly uh, in, in, in the market. And, you know, I think historically the organization kind of had its humble beginnings by just giving, you know, Linus a, a place to work that was, 
was not at a company because, you know, it's hard to do a, a benevolent dictator type project when someone works for a company, right? It hard, it's hard to build that trust. So that was kind of the original model. But now that open source is just so successful, we've seen um, companies involved in almost every popular project. There's definitely projects out there that fall under the cracks, but I think we should do a better job of like finding things like OpenSSL or some type of library out there that is widely used, but but no one's maintaining it and surfacing that to people and having you know them them contribute one big thing that you know we've been working on is this notion of um a lot of companies out there have these what they call corporate sustainability efforts and those tend to be very focused on like how green are you you know you you are as an organization you know how much you know data center you know we have but i, I we're trying to flip the conversation have open source included in corporate sustainability initiatives where like you're using all this stuff you're consuming it you know are you actually giving back to organizations that depend that depending on or are funding it. And so that's, that those are like kind of ideas that we want to push for that, you know, corporate involvement open source is not going away. It's only going to increase. And we're still in the early days in, in, in my opinion, because there's many industries that are not yet involved or have trained their folks to contribute back. Uh, so I think it's only going to continue to grow. So I don't know if that fully answers <laughs> your question, but uh, it, 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 the cat's out of the bag. And I think it's overall good, good because, you know, companies should be tasked to contribute back. And I think Red Hat has been a canonical example of a company that's done it extremely well because that's happened to actually be their business model. But, you know, an insurance company, that's not their business model, but they are using a lot of stuff and they should kind of, you know, contribute at least a little bit back to kind of sustain sustain things. And there does seem to be often a need for some sort of channel because an insurance company is not going to make their small Christmas gift to a developer for some piece of critical infrastructure. Correct. And then, you know, that channel like could be uh, it could be it could be a foundation that helps you know uh, folks. It, was, it could be a vendor. Uh, you know, I'm, a lot of this. Uh, I have a lot of concern around developers. You know, going this donation based approach. It's something that's kind of bothers me a little bit personally because you know donations have never worked well for you know starving artists for for many for for for, for eons. Uh, I think through throughout the history. And what's even worse is I think it even enables what we call, what I could essentially call like a like developer open source focused gig economy where people are expecting donations and you know they're not making enough money like i've actually done a lot of research in this there's very few developers out there actually you know being sustained by donations i think it's a poor model instead we should be teaching them how to find jobs or build businesses around the cool stuff they've done so they can actually sustain themselves with you know a a great business or with salary with benefits and and all that goodness that we come to come to expect um you know it's just it's interesting because you know we've had this recent trend of GitHub sponsors and people accepting donations, which is kind of nice. But I, like, I don't want developers to be confused that this is actually a sustainable way to, to do things. And it's just something that I think we could do better. And it's 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 almost wrong, I think, to spread that this is actually a possibility for for, for, for most folks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like writing books and other things <laughs> like that. I mean, at, at one level, yeah. it's hard for me to say there shouldn't be a donation platform no, no. like Patreon or anything. Yeah. But I'm I'm with you yeah. that it set. I think some people have unrealistic expectations because 
they're like, oh, my software is super popular, so I'm going to I'm going to have a Patreon, yeah. and you know maybe they don't think they're going to retire to Maui as a result, but they think <laughs> they're going to have a sustainable lifestyle, and in reality, that's often not the case. Absolutely, and and the other thing to think about is you you donating something to you know something to someone. The, the expectation is that you donate, and there is no expectation, right? You just give it because out of the goodness of your heart, in some ways, but. If you actually are using their software and they have like a, a product or something like consulting, there's actually like a business or contractual thing where paying them to do this or do that. If you just donate, like who like works on the the roadmap? Like like, who, like you know, are, are people getting upset if they donate and they're not working on the things that you want to? Pro- potentially, right? Like I, I don't think like money is not going to solve the sustainability problem. I think in, op- in, in open source, which I think is actually a small problem. I think in general, like we need to make it easier for companies to contribute back to open source, hire open source developers on stuff that they depend on and a lot some of their time and also just encourage people to, you know, who want to take the risk to start, you know, uh, a business around around their project. I think that's truly how we'll improve things. And, you know, it's it's something that just bothers me because, you know, it's it's being surfaced more now because, you know, you know, GitHub is a very dominant platform and they're kind of promoting this idea. And, you know, I've, I've recently said that, you know, I think GitHub is in a very privileged position given how dominant they are and and i just find it kind of very irresponsible that they're pushing uh this without actually you know telling people that like this is not gonna sustain like sustain you there should be like a warning sign uh, in, in my in my opinion personally and i think i rather see github f- helping people find jobs based on the data uh that that they have for for everything so We've been talking a lot about foundations. Some projects just don't want to go the foundation route for whatever reason, but they they buy into this idea of open governance. If you're not under a foundation with an sort of established open governance policies, what do you consider to be the essential elements that they should put in place for their project? You know, essentially have a constitution. So have something like a government, you know, our pattern, at least in many Linux Foundation and CNCF projects are like a governance.md file, which essentially describes how decisions are made, how things are governed, um, you know, how maintainers are added, removed, how are sub projects added, removed, etc. how releases are done. That would be step one. Um, the thing you have to be careful is like, I don't think you could do open governance without assets being neutrally owned, because at the end of the day, someone owns the domain, the rights to the trademark, uh, some of the copyright potentially. So there are many great organizations out there that are super lightweight. There are things like, you know, that the Apache Foundation, Software in the Public uh, Interest, uh, the Software Freedom Conservancy. There's lots of these organizations that's very lightweight to have like a neutral fiscal, you know, host if you're actually, um, you know, looking for it. But I personally think every project should at least document their governance in terms of how they actually run and <laughs> on, 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 on a daily basis. What's your take on contributor license agreement? It depends on what your business uh, needs are. For some companies, like if you're basically doing a startup, like you're like a, say like you're a MongoDB, right? And you have a business and you want to basically have a license to all the copyrights because you may want to build a product or go like a dual license, you know, type model. Cool. That's a very valid reason for a CLA. Otherwise, I view CLA as kind of a high friction tool for developers throughout my career. I've definitely seen people, you know, submit a pull request and bot will come back. You haven't signed a CLA. 
play and then they just disappear, right? Because they're like, I don't want to sign this. Actually, to sign this, I got to go talk to my, one of my lawyers inside my company. And that's like a painful process. So I'm not going to annoy that where, you know, we generally encourage people, you know, these days to essentially use what we call the developer certificate of origin. It's kind of how the Linux kernel works, right? Where basically it signs off that it takes all the basic things that are, you know, most CLAs would requ- like do, which would be like, did I write this code? Did I not copy it, you know, elsewhere? Do I have like the rights to actually give this to you? And you kind of sign off on that. And it's been a very successful model played out in the kernel and many other ecosystems. And generally not really supportive of having CLAs unless there's a, like a real strict business need uh, that you have, like you're a company or something. And this is kind of, you know, you, you want to build a business in a way that requires you to have people's copyrights licensed to you. What are some of the common anti-patterns that you run into? Things that, obviously, there are things that are very clearly bad, like, um, you know, like, like for instance, just basically not, it's open source, but we don't accept contributions from outside. But what are some of the things that people might think seem like reasonable practices, but really aren't in your experience? I've seen definitely a, a ton of, mistakes around um so like project branding i think is super uh important i think a lot of people dismiss the idea of uh having a strong brand associated project that is separate from any company or organization i think there's a common pattern where people you know will start a project it could be within a a company or, or yourself or you have like a startup and you'll you'll like you'll call it let's say you know docker right? And then you have Docker, the project, then you have Docker, the company, and then you also have Docker, you know, the, the, the product or Docker enterprise product. And all those things serve different audiences. And it just leads to confusion because, you know, I have an inherent belief that the name of something has a value proposition attached to it. And so I think the common pattern I see is like, don't, it, it could be attractive to name everything the same thing because you're like, oh, it's super popular, but it actually leads to confusion. It could be harder for you to like distinctly target to either sell to people that want to buy your product or sell to developers that you want to contri- have them contribute to, to your, to your project. So I think that's one that comes up quite often because I do kind of a lot of, you know, advising to projects and new companies. I'm like, you know what? Please name your company separate from your project, from, from, from your product. In terms of like maybe project specific anti patterns, it's very difficult to do security disclosure, uh, processes and practices right from, from day one. Uh, and so I generally tell projects not to like worry about that later in the early days don't try to it's it's almost like pre-optimizing you know for for performance right like don't like you'll figure out the security stuff as 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 you grow because like it's it's hard to do right there is no like good you know template and if you look at cncf we have a variety of projects that all kind of do it differently and and some you know made some mistakes uh in the early days when they created their policy because for example they were like well we're not going to allow like end users on our security, like private security disclosure list. And like, oh, actually, we should have, uh, you know, done that. That actually is, there is a class of end users. So it, you know, that's something that I've seen. Don't let, try to like pre-optimize your security disclosure process. Anything else you'd like to add? Sometimes there's like a lot of cynicism in folks that like, oh, you know, like open source is like, so like it, it becomes like corporate and you know things are terrible. But, you know, I think people need to step back. And, you know, if you look back 20 years ago, you know, a lot of us who were involved in, in kind of the earlier open source days, it's just like incredible how much things have changed. Like it, like, you know, we're at a conference with 12,000 people 
tons of companies all over the world are like embracing and using open source. We should just like celebrate and be happy that we've like all changed the world. Because when I started my career, like companies did not allow you to like use open source software or you had to go through something crazy like internal review process, you know, that would take months to just use some like little library. So instead of you just went and wrote your own because it was so painful, but things have completely, you know, changed. And so like, let's, I think we just like step back and, you know, celebrate uh, and, and embrace all these like diverse interests that, that, that exist now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You could also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.